you don't know who I am, my name is Kyle, and this is Uplift. So I don't want you to get lost. If you're in the wrong place, you're in the right place now. It's Uplift. Uh, by the way, our messages here on Uplift are going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're joining us on Sunday mornings for The Conversation, I'm glad that you're here. Go ahead and log into the chat and say hi. We're in the middle of a new series here at Uplift called Meet Jesus. We're allowing ourselves to be reintroduced to Jesus. And tonight, we're going to get a glimpse into Jesus's ability to plan a party. Jesus was a party planner. He evidently knew how to throw a good party. There is actually an abundance of information in the New Testament about Jesus as a host of these parties. I'm going to run through them. Not all of them are going to be on the screen. If you want to write some of these down, you can, but I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. The first place we find Jesus as a party planner, or as at least a host of a party, or as a guy who loved a good party is in John chapter 2. You remember this story? He's at a wedding in Cana. The host, the wedding party, runs out of wine. What does Jesus do? He transforms water into wine, not just the cheap stuff, but the good stuff, the most expensive stuff. Jesus is wanting the party to linger, to continue. People are having a good time. Jesus loved a good party. In Luke chapter 7, we actually have this one. It's in verse 34. Jesus was actually accused of being an alcoholic. I want to read this. Let's, let's read this together. The Son of Man, Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now look, obviously Jesus was not an alcoholic, but he cavorted with those who had that reputation. In Mark chapter 3, here's another instance, we find Jesus as a host in a house not his own that is full of people. And in that house, he's teaching and he's defending his associations. He likes a party. He likes a crowd. And in Luke chapter 15, I've got this one for you. We find this juicy little nugget of Jesus's gatherings. I want to show you this. Luke chapter 15, verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now this criticism here, this grumbling, this grumbling against Jesus, it hangs on two words. You can see it here in, in the passage. Two words here, that he receives and that he eats or eats with these people. Now, this is not just a description by Luke. These two words actually indicate something pretty special here. They indicate the creation of fellowship. That's what's happened here. Jesus formed a community of tax collectors and sinners. Said another way, maybe in language that we understand, Jesus led a connection group. He did. And this connection group met often. It wasn't a once a month thing, all right? It was all the time. But this criticism, really, if we're going to be honest, it's a little bit surprising from our perspective anyway, because why in the world would anyone criticize Jesus for hanging out with these people, with people on the fringe? On that side of history, though, in the Pharisees' eyes, the criticism made absolutely perfect sense. I want to show you something. This is a prayer from the Talmud. We've got this on the screen. 
This is a prayer actually from the Pharisees. It's written in the first century. I'm going to read this prayer to you. This is a prayer the Pharisees prayed in public. I thank you, Lord my God, that you've set my portion with those who sit in the sanctuary and not with those who sit on the street corners. I rise early and they rise early. I rise to attend the word of Torah and they to attend to futile things. I exert myself, they exert themselves. I exert myself and receive a reward and they exert themselves and receive no reward. I run, they run. I run to life in the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. Can you imagine praying a prayer like that? That was the prayer they prayed. For the Pharisees to see Jesus with those whom they thought were headed toward the pit of destruction, these poor and marginalized tax collectors and sinners, it was just too much. They could not fathom Jesus creating a connection group out of these kinds of people. I want to show you a picture of a book here. It's called A Glimpse of Jesus. This is by an author you might know. His name is Brennan Manning. Now, Brennan Manning actually wrote another more famous book. You've probably heard of this one. It's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Great book. I'm in the minority. I think this book, A Glimpse of Jesus, is a little bit better. It's his take on trying to be a theologian. I think it's a great book. But in this book, in A Glimpse of Jesus, Manning actually wrote about these two verses in Luke. And this is what he said. The phrase, he entertained sinners, suggests that Jesus was often the host and may have rented a hall more than once as he did at the Last Supper. Look at what Manning writes. The guest list would include a ragtag parade of donkey peddlers, prostitutes, herdsmen, slumlords, and gamblers. And he concludes by saying, a social climber, Jesus was not. Yet Jesus threw parties. He hosted gatherings. He led these connection groups. He involved himself in the lives of people who had no communal nucleus. You can imagine the conversation of these people, this, this rock star from Galilee wants to hang out with me. What is going on in the world? I mean, the premise of the most powerful person in their world finding themselves in the lives of the, most, of the least powerful is absolutely magnetic. And it had a life-changing quality to it. And for good reason, because special things happened at the parties that Jesus hosted. So all this gets us to our text tonight. And this is from Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 2. We're going to have the passage on the screens, but I'm old school. I like to see people reading. I read mine. Here we go. In Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus' first ever hosted party. It's what we find here. I'm going to read it to you. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all of the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to Levi, follow me. And Levi rose, and he followed him. Verse 15. 
And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with these people, with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he didn't give his disciples a chance to answer. When he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me give you some context here. So Mark actually begins this story by picturing Jesus walking on the shore or beside the sea. It's in the town of Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he used the same phrase here that Mark did that he used in chapter 1, verse 16. You know this. Listen to what he said just a few verses earlier. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Now, what Mark's doing here, he's a good writer. He's using a literary signal by using the same phrase, even though it sounds a little different in our English translations, he's using the same phrase here to indicate to us, to those of us who are reading this, that Jesus is about to call some more disciples. Because thus far in this gospel, in Mark, Jesus has only found disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So we know something pretty significant is about to go down. And publicly, up until this point, Jesus has made a name for himself. You might know some of these stories, but in chapter 1, Jesus found himself in combat with a demon in a synagogue, which he incidentally won. And then next, right before this passage in chapter 2, Jesus famously healed a paralytic who could only reach Jesus through the roof of a house with his friends helping to lower him. So in Galilee, in Capernaum, all eyes are on Jesus, and he does not disappoint. So we find him here in our text in Mark chapter 2, calling new followers whose occupations and lifestyles gave them the label of sinners. And to everyone's complete shock, Jesus threw them a party. Now listen, this is not some Martha Stewart garden party here, okay? Different sort of crowd who live by different kinds of rules. It's a crowd of prodigals, of wayward sons and daughters who couldn't find their way home. And so he throws these people a party. We're meeting Jesus again. And in this reintroduction, we actually get to know something about Jesus by the way the prodigals respond to him. There's three ways. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. The first thing we notice is that prodigals listen. They listen to Jesus. Let's read again verses 13 and 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea. All the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to Levi, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, in these two verses, we got three things we got to pay attention to. First, you got to pay attention to what Jesus is doing. He's walking. He's walking beside the sea. Don't gloss over this. Jesus is itinerant. He's mobile. He doesn't demand people come to him. He seeks and finds them. He doesn't speak in mandates and let his words rule. He doesn't make commands by fiat. He lived among people. He was incarnate. That's the first thing. The second thing you have to notice here 
is that Mark wrote something kind of cool. He wrote that all of the crowd, all, big word, big word, all of the crowd came to Jesus, all of them. Mark's word for crowd here is kind of specific. It's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. So when we hear the word crowd, you probably think of images of people in shopping malls like the Galleria or in the concourse of Minute Maid Park. That's not really what Mark is communicating with this specific word. We, we think a mass of people, a, a bunch of people, thousands of people when we hear the word crowd. That's not the word that Mark used. He actually chose another word. This is so cool. Mark used the word for crowd that was also used in Greek documents at the time to refer to a confused group of people. People really didn't know what was going on. That word was also used in Greek documents to refer to soldiers on the front lines in battle, not the officers, the soldiers who would inevitably be killed. This word was also used to describe roadies or gophers in the army, the people who went and got the coffee for the officers. They really weren't smart enough or or talented enough to be soldiers or officers. So what Mark did is he hijacked that word and put it in his gospel to describe the people who follow Jesus. He's using this word as a mental picture. This group here is a less than kind of crowd. They're a crowd of prodigals, of people who weren't wanted or desired, of people who were ostracized and overlooked. And every single one of them listened to Jesus, all of them. All of them. And included in this group was Levi, the tax collector. A little bit about him. He collected taxes on transported goods that were brought across the Sea of Galilee into the port city of Capernaum. And these, t- these taxes supported the lifestyle of the hated King Herod. They didn't go to the Roman Empire. Galilee wasn't controlled by Rome. These went to, to King Herod. And listen, some Some people actually think that paying taxes is a patriotic thing. You got to do your duty, right? But I can assure you that the people in this crowd thought no such thing. They listened to Jesus call a dreaded tax collector to discipleship, the guy who represented the very power that threatened to take away their life. But get this, there's no mutiny here. There's no mutiny. Nobody's fussing over this. I mean, this is is why this group of prodigals, this crowd, saw Jesus deliberately call one of them into discipleship. This tax collector was no less a prodigal than everyone else here. Prodigals listen to Jesus because he talks to them not at them. No one else does that in their life. Here's the second thing we learn about Jesus through the interaction with the prodigals. They not only listen, but prodigals follow. They follow. They follow Jesus. Look at this. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. As Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples For there were many who followed him. Underline that word followed in your Bible. Jesus partied with the prodigals and the crowd who listened 
became the crowd who followed. There's a couple of things here. One, Mark mentions a couple of groups of people, specific groups of people. We've already read this phrase a few times here. He mentioned tax collectors and sinners. Now, we've already talked about tax collectors for a minute. Let's talk about these sinners, this phrase here. Sinners was a flexible term. It was a flexible word. And it was short, it was code, for people who stood outside of the Jewish law. It was an umbrella term for gamblers and loan sharks and thieves. It was used to describe shepherds. It was used to describe day laborers who were too poor or busy or uninformed to follow this religious law and these religious rules. But it was this group who followed Jesus. They followed him. What a delicious word, by the way, followed. This word occurs 19 times in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark uses this word to describe the proper response to believing in Jesus. But listen, following is an action word. It's not a static word. It implies movement behind Jesus. It's not a word for mental assent. It's not just about agreement. Following is not about just agreement. Following requires motion. It requires risk. It requires cost. And it requires imitation. That's what it means to follow. Listen carefully. Agreement is not imitation. It's not imitation. Most people, most people believe, agree that Jesus was good. Most people agree that Jesus was God. But many who agree with those statements refuse to imitate. Imitation requires attention. It requires learning and watching. You have to ask, your, ask yourself some questions. Who, who, who did Jesus honor? Well, we're going to honor those people because Jesus does. What did Jesus teach on relationships? Well, we engage relationally. We live relationally the way that Jesus taught. Did Jesus suffer? Then we're going to do it too. Did he celebrate? We're going to celebrate. Why did he celebrate? Whatever those reasons were, we adopt those reasons. That's what it means to follow. This party of prodigals decided to follow Jesus because prodigals follow. And you know why? Because no one else was willing to lead them. Here's the third thing we learn about Jesus from these prodigals. The prodigals were prioritized by Jesus. They were prioritized by Jesus. Now this, if you kind of read that again, it might, might be a little shocking that Jesus has preferences. Well, let's look at Jesus' words here. It's the conclusion of this passage. Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus admitted something here. He discovered that the boundaries between the insiders and the outsiders is a porous boundary. And in crossing that boundary, he offered hope and connection to people who had never felt those things, ever. In fact, the greatest part of this story is that he sought the prodigals first. He made them his priority. And 
in crossing these boundaries, he overcame the worst form of human depravity. This is grace. That's what this is. Evident before Jesus was ever crucified and resurrected. Listen, he made no compunctions here. And he offered no excuses for his behavior. He knew full well that the very crowd of prodigals who followed him here would eventually follow him to Jerusalem and be manipulated by the Jerusalem, Jerusalem leaders to turn against him. But you know what? That didn't matter because he loved them anyway. He loves me anyway. He loves you anyway. This is Jesus. Jesus has one more party to throw, by the way. One more. One more party for the prodigals. I want to read to you this description. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In this description, the bride has arrived. And this great party, this great celebration dinner, it's about to start once the groom arrives. I want you to listen to the description of his glorious entrance. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This last party that Jesus will ever throw, the party of his return described from Revelation 19, will be the party to end all parties. 
every good food you've ever tasted will be remembered at that moment as paltry and bland. Every great band and every great song you've ever heard will be remembered as being performed by amateurs. And every great dance you've ever shared will be remembered as disappointing. At this last great party, Jesus will arrive with blood on the hem of his robe from slaying every evil that ever hurt you. And the prodigals, his church, will finally be home. And amen to that.